Morning, everybody. Y'all doing okay? We're back in Acts chapter 4 today. We'll be in verse 1 through 22. Some of you guys hadn't read that much Bible in about six years. That's a, almost a whole chapter. <laughs> Acts 4. Everybody have a good Christmas? It's cold, and that's not okay. So, Father, we come to your word today expectant, desperate. Lord, we don't live on bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth, it's our sustenance and our strength. So, Holy Ghost, we ask right now in Jesus' beautiful name that you would breathe on this place as we study your word. Or this isn't something we do out of tradition. This isn't something we do out of religious ritual, God. We come to your word expectant to encounter your voice. Paul told us that this word was God-breathed. So Lord, we come to your breath with reverence. Lord, our hearts won't be changed by the intellect or charisma of man. Our hearts are only changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Come, we pray in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Everybody say amen. amen. Kids are rocking upstairs already. Somebody might have to go there. I thought the spirit was coming while I was praying. Then I was, nope, that's the kids. Well, I've been reading about the Covenanters for some time now and thinking about their significance in history. I want to share with you a bit. Um, because I think their story is going to be important for us in the coming days. John Knox was one of the reformers, the initial reformers. And in the 1550s, he led a group of Protestant believers who left the church at Rome, left the Catholic church, to form a reformed Protestant church of Scotland. So Scotland's official church now was going to be reformed, a, a Calvinistic um, Protestant church, and this church was to be governed by presbyters and local elders, and so um, not to be governed by Roman bishops that were established um, by the Pope in a, in a country far away. Well, King James VI, he, he accepted the, the Scottish Reformed Church and was okay with that, but he thought that as the king, he was the head of the church as well, and it was his right to appoint bishops over the local elders and presbyters. And so that was a power play um, that King James VI went after, and that power play felt an awful lot like um, the Roman form of church government and and the Scottish reformers weren't a big fan of that. Now, this goes on for some time and his son Charles continued to argue for the right of the king to govern the church. He said that it was the king's God-given authority to to govern all that happens within the church, the way that they would worship, the way that they would function, to establish leaders of the church that he wanted to establish and obviously there was perversion in that system throughout history. Um, and and he, uh, he argued again that, that bishops should be established at the king's appointing. Now, what pursued over the next hundred years, over a hundred years, would result in the death of thousands of individuals 
Um, it led to civil war, great bloodshed. There are some historians who argue that with the Scottish Covenanters, this group of Reformed Presbyterians in the 16th and 17th century experience was as harsh, if not harsher, than the persecution that the early church experienced in the first couple centuries. So we're talking about thousands of people losing their heads because of their conviction that there should be no king or no pope who governs and controls the church, but the church should be governed by the word of God as local elders and pastors are established. And so they continually go to death. Now, the Scottish Covenanters, they're called the Covenanters because they formed, you guessed it, a covenant, uh, a document that laid out their arguments, and 60,000 individuals signed this, this, this covenant. Now, King Charles II, again, we're moving through history, he played along for a while because uh, there was civil war, and he needed the Covenanters on his side to establish his authority, and so he played along, um, but once the war was over, he um, declared that any who would hold to the covenant, have committed high treason, and therefore were worthy of death. Marcus of Argyle, Marcus is a term of nobility, um, was, was a high um, official. He was actually the, the official who placed the king, placed the crown on King Charles's head at the day of his coronation. Marcus of Argyle was also a covenanter. And so he was the first to go to death for believing that the church should not be ruled over by the king. I forgot to mention that one of the things that really set them off was that the king um, established a book of common prayer. And in the book of, he, he forced that book of common prayer upon the churches. And in the book of common prayer, it felt an awful bit Catholic to them. And they, they weren't very excited about that. So Marcus of Argyle gets ready to go to death. He's, again, the man who placed the crown on Charles's head. And he'll go to death because he believes that although Charles is a legitimate authority from Scripture, all authority is from God, he's a legitimate authority, but he does not have authority over the church. The Scripture is the ultimate authority for the church. That's conviction from the Protestant Reformation. And so as Marcus of Argyle walks to his death, he was walking with some friends, and he says this, I place the crown on the king's head. Now he beckons me to a better crown than his own. I place the king's crown on his head, but he now beckons me to a better crown than his own. Over the coming years, thousands of men lost their heads. On multiple occasions, men were murdered in front of their families. They lose their head. And the soldiers who cut off their heads used their heads as footballs and kicked them around town. As men lost their heads in their hands, they would cut off their heads in their hands. They would be displayed in public squares so that all people would see what would happen if you ever dared say that the king didn't have authority over the church. The ruling power intended to intimidate out of the church obedience to the scripture. Some were murdered in front of their wives and children. There was a particular woman in this movement who was tied up and left in the oncoming tide. She was left where tide normally comes to drown. She waited for the tide to come and swallow her. Now again, the Covenanters were good Calvinists and they believed in authority, that they believed in government, but they did not believe that a king had the right to usurp the word of God and rule over the church. So when the king gave them the option to obey me or die, they chose obedience to the word of God and death over and over 
and over again, thousands and thousands of individuals chose death. Now, we've read of Peter and John. We're moving back to Acts chapter 4. We read of Peter and John's miraculous healing ministry. Remember, they were on their way to the temple at the hot time of worship for the day. There were a lot of people around, and there was a man who had been crippled since birth. This man was in his 40s. And Peter and John say to the man, Silver or gold I have not, but what I do have in the name of Jesus I give you, stand and walk. Now this man who's been crippled from birth and all have seen him sit at the gate called Beautiful for years is now jumping and leaping through the temple. Now Peter and John have gathered now thousands of individuals who have witnessed this healing and want to know by whose power and whose name did they perform this miracle. Peter and John say, We performed it in the name of Jesus, the one that you crucified, who is now resurrected from the dead. He is the cornerstone. He is the God of all ages. He is the Messiah. It was Jesus who healed this man. Now, the moment that Peter and John gather this crowd and the moment that Peter and John begin to preach the gospel in Jesus' name, the scripture will tell us this morning that immediately the ruling elite class, they come down upon them, arrest them, take them to prison, and threaten them to never speak again in the name of the Lord. Now, Peter and John's response is this. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen in, or heard. In other words, God commands us to speak. We'll obey him over you. So Peter and John, common uneducated men, look the ruling elite wealthy class in the face and say, you can try to intimidate us, you can try to threaten us, but we will be obedient to God even unto death. And they create a pattern there that the church has followed throughout history, the faithful church, the pattern that the covenanters agreed to. We will be obedient to God even unto death. We will not cower. We will not shake. We will not tremble. We will be men and women of boldness and confidence and faith, and we will bow to no idol. Now, let's read the scripture, and we'll, we'll try to keep examining this idea as how does the church react when culture, when the ruling elite rise up and do everything they can to intimidate and squelch the fire of God, not realizing that what they're actually doing is fanning a holy flame, the Tertullian who said that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the gospel. Every time a saint goes to death for the gospel of Christ, God makes that blood seed that spreads throughout a nation. And so the ruling elite who want power always try to eventually intimidate the church out of speaking, in some cases even leading them to death. How does the church react? How does the church respond? What kind of people are we in hours of persecution? That should matter to you, should matter to you a lot in the days coming ahead. Acts chapter 4, verse 1 through 22. And as they were speaking to the people, they being Peter and John, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The priest, the captain of the temple, historians tell us that that would have been the individual who was directly under the high priest. And the Sadducees, they came upon them. Came upon them is really an interesting phrase. The Greek phrase means that sometimes it's translated, they descended upon them. Now imagine Peter and John preaching, sharing to 5,000 men. When the scripture says 5,000 men, that usually implies that they're not counting the women and children. So even more thousands of people, Peter and John are preaching. And then the ruling elite class descends down upon them. The Sadducees, of course, did not believe in resurrection. That we know. It's likely that they were annoyed by the idea that Jesus was raised from the dead. But, but that, that alone is not what's going on here. The Sadducees are not just those who don't believe in resurrection. The Sadducees are the ruling class of the Jews in this day. Not the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the rich, were the wealthy. They held all the political power. They were elites, politicians. They were the financially well-off and very pious. It seems that they're most frustrated with Peter and John because Peter and John are now advocating a movement that will undercut their power. Now, what do these men do when their power feels threatened? They descend upon you with all the strength they can muster. There will always be a ruling, elite, cultural momentum that grows frustrated at the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus. And those ruling, elite, cultural, momentous body of people will always descend down upon the sons and daughters of God who preach the gospel in boldness and conviction because hell cannot stand the sound of spirit-filled people proclaiming the truth that Jesus has placed deep down inside their belly. Hella will always descend down upon us with all the strength and power she can muster. Now, they descend down upon Peter and John, but they seem to have no legitimate case. They have no legitimate authority. And when you have no legitimate case and no legitimate authority, all you have left to use is intimidation. They tend to intimidate 
the faithful. After all, they won't actually punish Peter and John. They leave them in prison for a night and then threaten them. Intimidation. Little do they know that Peter and John are no longer the easily intimidated type. Come on, you get filled with the Holy Ghost and intimidation is child's play. You get filled with the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden intimidation is, is nothing to cower from. Leonard Ravenhill used to say those intimate with God can never be intimidated by man. Get the Holy Ghost in your belly. In just a few chapters, we'll find Peter in prison facing the, the threat of death and he will be dead asleep as a man who sleeps in perfect peace. When you're dead to the world, the world's threats actually don't mean that much. And by God, what we need in this hour is a church who knows what it means to be dead to the world. So they spend the night in prison. In the morning, Peter and John are brought before what some would call the high court of the land. The high priestly family, Ananias, Caiaphas... John and Alexander, the whole high priestly family, along with the the elders and the scribes and the rulers. Again, scholars and historians tell us that the majority of these individuals would have been Sadducees. Sadducees held the power, but some would have been Pharisees. Um, You know, the the, the faithful, rigid sect would would have been a part of this, this movement. And so they gather this great assembly and they have Peter and John, who spent the night in chains, now come stand before them. They ask this question, by what power... Bro, what name did you do these things? That was the wrong question to ask. They just, they just, that's what you called getting, getting lobbied a, a softball there. They just set Peter's entire sermon up. Thank you. The scripture says that in this moment, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 18 through 20, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, listen, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. The promise of Jesus is that the church will be drugged before governors and officials and persecuted. And his words are not to be anxious for the spirit of God will fill our bones and speak through us. And so Peter in this moment doesn't tremble with fear. Remember on the night that Jesus was crucified, Peter was a different man. Then he did tremble with fear. Then he did run. But now he's walked through Pentecost, okay? Now he's filled with the fire of heaven. And a little intimidation ain't going to intimidate him. And so he speaks boldly filled with the spirit he says emboldened by the spirit it's by jesus of nazareth whom you crucified that we healed this man he quotes psalm 118 verse 22 the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone in other words peter's using scripture the uneducated fisherman is now using scripture to show that the stone that you've rejected sadducees and pharisees and high priests the one that you killed god said he would make the cornerstone and jesus who you put on a cross has now become the foundation by which the kingdom of god will be built by what power do we heal do we see the spirit work what name the name of jesus and there is salvation in no one else in other words unless you too bow your name your knees to the name of jesus you too will be judged 
Hmm. And there lies the message that we must refuse to cower from. Our culture is screaming at us, be polytheist. Our culture screams, be universalist. Have Jesus, just don't leave us out. Don't be exclusive. Yet Peter says, full of the Holy Ghost, there is no other name by which men are saved. And unless we are willing to stand and proclaim what Peter stood and proclaimed, we may be unfit for the kingdom of God. Jesus says in Luke 9.62, No one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for this kingdom. If we are afraid of that message, we are afraid of the entire gospel. If we are unwilling in this hour to get a stinking backbone, men and women, and proclaim the truth of God that is clear in this scripture, then we may be unfit for the kingdom. The message is plain. The message is clear. The gospel is inclusive in the sense that all are invited in. It doesn't matter you're red, yellow, black, and white, rich, poor, from the corners of the earth. I don't care where you're from. You are welcome to come and bow your knee to Jesus. But if you are unwilling to bow your knee to Jesus, then you are unwelcome. It's the plain gospel message. And you better be willing to hold it, to, to, to live it, to die for it. Because our culture will rise up quickly. And do all she can to back.